You're listening to Key Matters from Kappa Kappa Gamma with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. I'm Kylie Smith, the Archivist and Museum Director, and my co-host is Dr. Mary Osborne, the Director of the Stewart House Museum. Thank you for joining us as we travel through the Key Magazine from 1882 to today. So we are discussing the Key Magazine for the years 1895 and 1896, and you get to start with 1895. I do, I'm so excited. So remember a few episodes ago when I said there was nothing remarkable about the 1880s as an entire decade? I do, you just kind of tossed them aside. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, now that's not to say important things didn't happen, but as a whole, there was no overarching theme or, you know, catchphrase or like there is with um, the 1890s. But um, anyway, there must be something magical or at least nostalgic about the year 1895. So when we were deciding who was going to cover which year, I was reminded of a poem by Vincent Starrett titled 221B. And if you can't guess by now, this is about Sherlock Holmes because <laughs> it's one of those things I have to cover. <laughs> so I, I um, did not guess. Yeah, so Starrett. <laughs> uh, Vincent Starrett was a Canadian-born American writer who published some of the first Sherlock Holmes scholarship, um, in particular, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, which was published in 1933. Starrett was a member of the Baker Street Irregulars, and one of the reasons I remembered his poem was because the final stanza of 221b ends with the lines, here though the world explode, these two survive, and it is always 1895. And I was pondering that stanza again this morning, because like, why, why did he choose 1895? And in one respect, it, it 1895 was the last year of sort of this idyllic world. So Queen Victoria was still on the throne and the Anglo-Boer War hadn't yet begun. So there was still that long period of peace that everyone seemed to be enjoying. And of course, more practical reason, it's easier to find words that rhyme with five. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe he just, maybe Starrett chose it for a really practical reason. Uh, moving on with the context for this year, we're going to talk about some historical events. In April, the first Sino-Japanese War ended. W.E.B. Du Bois became the first African-American to receive a Ph.D. from Harvard University. Catherine Lee Bates' lyrics, America the Beautiful, were published. And the first professional American football game was played in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, between the Latrobe YMCA and the Jeanette Athletic Club, Latrobe won 12 zip. Look at you quoting sports statistics. I know. Well, I've, I've, you know, I've been on this 1980s pop culture kick, so I'm just trying to squirrel away all kinds of random. There may even be a sports category during trivia night, so you never know. Something will well, come in handy, you know. And you know that I love sports ball, so go team. <laughs> So um, notable people that were born in 1895 include the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, actress Hattie McDaniel, architect Richard Buckminster Fuller, and author Carol Ryrie Brink, uh, known for the Caddywood Lawn series. 
Okay, jumping into the first issue, January, uh, for the past several issues, the key has been following developments in women's higher education, as well as the state of the professions opening up to women. The January issue has taken a broader view by discussing developments in Germany, one of the more conservative European countries. The essay, the opening essay, compares and contrasts American and German educational systems. The German system favors rote memorization and is largely class-based. To put it bluntly, you get what you pay for. Those with few means have few opportunities. The author of this essay, however, claims that the German people seemed untroubled by this rigid social hierarchy, and some, even those we would consider middle class, boasted about where they sent their children to school. Co-education in the lower grades was unheard of in Germany, as society believed a girl could not be educated and domestic. As an aside, it's interesting that the same philosophies that Kappa's founders opposed were still alive and well in Germany in 1895. I would say that that's partly due to the fact that Kaiser Wilhelm II was heavily influenced by his grandfather rather than his parents. Wilhelm's parents, Frederick and Victoria, never really had the opportunity to promote liberal ideals that they wanted to, partly because Wilhelm's father, Friedrich, died after only being on the throne, I believe it was like three months, less than 90 days, a very short period of time. The Olympia department in the January issue includes a biographical sketch of Dr. Annie McKinnon. And as I was researching for this episode, I learned that McKinnon was a mathematician who earned her doctorate in mathematics from Cornell in 1894. As someone who sometimes struggles to have her students address her as doctor or professor, it annoyed me that this essay referred to McKinnon as Miss. If her accomplishments weren't noticed in the key, then it should give her the respect she deserves. And speaking of women who had to deal with degradation, the key mentions Mary Jane Patterson, who passed away the previous year in 1894. She was the first African-American woman to earn a BA from Oberlin in 1862. Patterson's biography on Wikipedia notes that she served as Dunbar High School's first Black principal from 1871 to 1872. However, Patterson was then demoted and served as assistant principal under Richard Theodore Greener, the first Black Harvard University graduate. She was reappointed after Greener left from 1873 to 1884. 1870s, though, is still, that seems early, which is, I'm not um, downplaying what she faced, but it's amazing to hear of a woman and an African-American woman who is, is given that position in the 1870s. So interesting. Dunbar High School, I believe, is located or was located in Washington, D.C., so her um, appointment may have been due to the fact that in the nation's capital, those early years after the Civil War and during Reconstruction, there were quite a, quite a bit of firsts you know, within yeah. the American community. Um, the comparison between German and American education continues in the April issue. It was common for American women students to pursue additional study abroad. And, and I'm gonna butcher the name of this university. I'm just gonna spell it. G-O-E-T-T-I-N-G-E-N. University was open. I think it's Guttening. Guttening. Oh yeah, you, you've traveled. Or something <laughs> like that. Okay, <laughs> yes, I apologize for any of our, any German listeners or anyone who speaks German. 
again, not my second language. <laughs> <laughs> that university was opening its doors to women, albeit in a limited way. It admitted its first woman student, an American, either in 1894 or um, in 1895 as that April issue was coming out. Um, the admission system bears some similarities to our graduate schools in that a prospective student applied to study with a professor or, or certain professors. The German professors had a great deal of autonomy in the university. It was up to them whether or not to admit women to their lectures. So a, a student, a woman student could gain admission to the university, but still be denied admission to lectures. As of fall 1894, there were 15 women students, 11 of whom were American, one German, and three English. They were only permitted to attend lectures, but they had all of the privileges of a matriculated student. So they could use the library, for example, or any of the facilities on campus. The author of this article, our own Annie McKinnon from Cornell, concludes by discouraging American women from applying to that university. <laughs> Or I should probably say any German, if there were other German universities that were admitting women, um, just for the sake of applying for the novelty factor, because she argues that if they desire to pursue further study, they should really begin with universities within the United States. Because if these women should do anything to discredit themselves, even if they didn't intend on, on doing something embarrassing, but just if any, any shadow of doubt should you know, fall on their, their characters, their actions would reflect badly on German women too. And McKinnon reminds readers that German women have no universities of their own, unlike in the United States. Good point. Switching gears to the chapters, Beta Beta gives some insight into the chapter shift to the social side of campus life. Co-education, they argued, isn't a novelty anymore, and women have more opportunities than ever before. The emphasis on social life is almost as if chapters were overcompensating for the dearth of activities in the early years of their existence. So in other words, in those early years of Kappa's existence, there were very few, if any, extracurricular activities. One of the reasons for the emphasis on academics was that was why students were going to college. Um, and now there are so many more uh, activities available for students and opportunities to have parties and picnics and so on that it's almost as if these chapters are making up for lost time. I don't know. It was an interesting idea. In the chapter letters, Sai's Sai chapter, Cornell, uh, made me chuckle as it gives an out, a shout out to Emily Dunning, who, quote, is going to be a doctor sometime and now devotes her attention to vivisection. So Oof. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm sure they meant it as a compliment, I think, but it, yeah, that probably wasn't the best thing. So that's Emily Dunning Barringer. Emily Dunning Barringer. She was the first woman ambulance surgeon in the United States, not to be confused with Mary Crawford, who was the first woman ambulance surgeon in Brooklyn. Gotcha. Okay. In these introductory articles, there is a tendency to characterize all of the career fields as some type of science. There's an essay in the July issue, which is an extreme example of this trend. I'm happy to say that I did learn a new word as I was doing my research. So it turns out that ecology spelled in this issue as O-E-K-O-L-O-G-Y is another name for domestic science or home economics. And Kylie, you'll appreciate that Tade Hearts of Coons authored this article. Her descriptions of 
quote unquote, modern life are more fascinating to me uh, probably than her descriptions of ecology, um, just because you know we're seeing so many more advances, improved transportation, um, and re refrigeration mean that people have access to foods outside of the normal growing season. Uh, women had more demands upon their time because, for one thing, they had more leisure time. So, science, in this case, ecology or home economics, whatever you want to call it, has the answers to help them run their homes more efficiently. Tade stresses that ecology promotes good hygiene, it helps women plan nutritious meals, and in doing all of these tasks, the, the educated woman knows where to consult the best sources. So she is an expert in her field. So Tade also argues, um, because of all of this, um, that a broad liberal arts education can actually equip women to be better housekeepers. The July issue also includes a sketch about a graduate student who had a negative opinion of Greek life and then changed her mind after being invited to a shadow party. So I was going to put the question to you. Do you know what a shadow party is? Because I do not. After you asked me that earlier, I looked it up and my only guess is that it might be another name for a shadow play where they're using shadow puppets or a silhouette or shade party where they made silhouettes of one another, or if they could afford it, they had an artist who could make silhouettes of all the guests who were at the party. I found references to both in the 18th and 19th centuries, so that might be it. The term shadow party now has a political connotation, so it's all about, you know, the deep state and that kind of thing. So I, I'm not sure. So if any of our listeners know what a shadow party is, please share. That term reminds me of the time I was I was reading issues of the American Legions magazine for my dissertation, and I kept running across references to a smoker. <laughs> and that that actually is what it sounds like. It is a party in which smoking is involved. So. Well, and a lot of older chapter houses have what they would call a smoker. It was like the smoker's lounge. I also want to note Upsilon's compelling argument for uniform badges. We see some of these issues reoccur throughout the years. And this isn't, of course, this isn't the first time that the question of the badge design has come up. But Upsilon argues that if we have one uniform design, that that will create a better connection among the chapters. It will basically mean that CAPA will be more inclusive for actives and alums. Um, for chapters all over the United States, because one Kappa at, at, let's say, Cornell, let's say she's traveling across the country and she's in California, that she, you know, she will be able to see another sister, recognize another sister just by the badge. You don't have to worry about, oh, this, this badge is, you know, two inches, or this one is encrusted with pearls or whatever, that that having, having one consistent design would create um, stronger bonds of sisterhood. I think that also comes up too because of jewelers and how they were deciding upon what jeweler to use. And is it more expensive if I'm in Iowa and I'm forced to order a badge from an official jeweler in Ithaca? So, yeah. And on another level, this argument resonated with me because I thought, well, what if, you know, after um, the last convention, 2018, what if someone had decided or proposed that alumni initiates needed their own badge because we didn't have the same experience? I, that would make me sort of feel ostracized, like I didn't belong or 
Yeah. So I'm glad that there's half, half a badge for half an experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We only have the award. For, I don't know. <laughs> it appears by the end of 1895 that the series of articles on careers is starting to wrap up because the last in the last issue that I have October 1895 architecture seems to be one of the last professions to open up to women according to Jesse Cassidy from Psy Chapter because of women's perceived lack of mechanical ability the need for a strong personality to deal with craftsmen I have to admit I hadn't really thought about that aspect but that is one reason given and because of the attire so inspecting infrastructure requires women to wear to wear bloomers um, or to wear something that isn't going to get caught in a beam or uh, potentially incur accusations of immodesty. <laughs> but according to Cassidy, one of the reasons that more women aren't joining the field of architecture is because bloomers aren't artistic. So anyone who has the characteristics to become an architect, you know, has this artistic personality with that's going to clash with this practical need to you know, wear, wear clothes, wear bloomers because they are, they're just ugly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway. Oh, I love it. Bloomers. Future culottes. Yeah. yeah. The historically speaking podcast episode we did on the Hearthstone generated so much positive feedback as I was reading the October issue, it reminded me of that, that Hearthstone episode, because in October issue, a member of Beta Tau, which is Syracuse University, suggests establishing a summer home for Kappas to maintain the bonds of sisterhood. So not a retirement home, but we, we just, we need an Airbnb. <laughs> That's funny because it comes up in six as well. I, I don't know. I think we might be missing out on a on some re revenue. <laughs> also in 1895, colleges and universities such as Northwestern and DePauw are beginning to adopt the custom of academic regalia for undergraduates. And I'm not sure if the undergrads, and maybe it varied by institution, but if they were required to wear the gown, especially during classes or just at certain times of the year, like like uh, matriculation or commencement, but Kappas seem to be mostly in favor of it. I guess they weren't considered ugly, <laughs> so, um, unlike those bloomers. <laughs> right. And it, it makes sense in a way because there's so much symbolism involved uh, in academic regalia. It makes sense that it would be appealing because so there's so much ritual and symbolism involved in Kappa and Greek life in general. And finally, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a true Key Matters episode unless I talk about one of my magical research unicorns. I mean, I got Sherlock Holmes in there, but yeah, this issue reports that Cornell elected its first woman trustee, Martha Carey Thomas, who may have been the first woman trustee in the United States. She was a Cornell alum and at the time of her election, president of Bryn Mawr. And of course, Dr. Crawford was also a Cornell trustee. So I got her in there, yay. yay. <laughs> So that, um, that wraps up 1895. You've been listening to Key Matters, brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma, with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Our headquarters is in Columbus, Ohio. 
Our house museum, the Stewart House, is in Monmouth, Illinois. You can find us online at kappa.org, or you can peruse our digital archives at kappa.historyit.com. Research and production is done by the director of the Stewart House Museum and member of Alpha Deuteron Chapter at Monmouth College, Dr. Mary Osborne, and me, Kylie Smith, from Omicron Deuteron Chapter at Simpson College, and the archivist and museum director for Kappa Kappa Gamma. Thank you.